good afternoon and welcome to Hudson Institute, a nonpartisan think tank promoting American leadership and global engagement for a secure, free, and prosperous future. Little to argue there, I suppose. Uh, I'm Charles Davidson, the executive director of the Kleptocracy Initiative here at the Hudson Institute, and we research how the combination of autocracy and globalized corruption threaten democracy, capitalism, and national security. Today, we're honored to welcome Mr. Oleksandr Daniliuk, the finance minister of Ukraine. Mr. Daniliuk began his career in the private sector as a consultant and investment manager, working with firms such as McKinsey & Company in Ukraine, London, and Moscow. He entered public service in 2005 as economic advisor to the then prime minister. From 2010 to 2015, he served as head of the Economic Reforms Coordination Center, an apolitical think tank under the aegis of the administration of the president of Ukraine. Following the revolution of dignity, the Maidan protests, in 2014, he became the president well, he became President Poroshenko's representative at the Cabinet of Ministers and later the deputy head of the presidential administration. Mr. Daniliuk was instrumental in establishing the National Anti-Corruption Bureau and the National Agency for Prevention of Corruption, as well as the introduction of wealth e-declarations for Ukrainian officials. Mr. Daniliuk succeeded Natalie Juresko as finance minister of Ukraine in 2016. His stated priorities include creating a better investment climate in Ukraine, improving transparency for businesses, and public finance reform. Ukraine is a vital U.S. ally, which continues to face significant internal challenges and external threats. So we are very excited to host Minister Daniliuk for a conversation with Walter Russell Mead, a distinguished fellow here at Hudson Institute. Professor Mead is also the James Clark Chase Professor of Foreign Affairs and Humanities at Bard College, that's a mouthful, and editor-at-large of the American Interest, most importantly. Uh, so, uh, the Minister Daniliuk will speak for about 10 minutes, and then uh, we'll have a conversation with Walter Mead, followed by questions and answers. Thank you very much. Minister, it's yours. So, if you like, or sit here, which you prefer. Um, stay here. I feel more important this way. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for this opportunity to uh, to speak here and tell you about the reforming, about reforming my country, Ukraine, as you've heard from my brief description of my experience. I've been around for quite a while and uh, um, seen different uh, stages of uh, reforming the country. Um, now, it's all started uh, when I was still uh, very, very young, right, since independence. That's when Ukraine 
started uh, its first reforms, we made a strategic choice towards democracy, towards market uh, economy. Um, since then, um, some problems were resolved, some problems stayed, some even worsened, because any problem which is not being resolved actually gets worse and worse. Um, but if you look for the last 25 years, we have a totally different, uh, totally different uh, country uh, now. With all these years, as a part of policy, we were um, Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine leadership kept this multi-vector approach. Uh, it all changed. It's all changed since the revolution of dignity in the beginning of 2014, where we made our clear choice um, that we go to Europe and we intensify um, and intensify our, our reforms. And our neighbor to the east uh, became an aggressor. And that was a new reality uh, for, for Ukraine, which also impacted uh, the reform um, dynamics uh, in the country. That was also an opportunity in 2014 to do the most important, the most difficult reform um, that Ukraine had to do many years ago. Unfortunately, that some of this opportunity was, uh, was missed. Um, and uh, still some reforms like pension reform, land market reform, they're still on our agenda. Um, and as I said, if that reforms are not done, they become more and more of a problem. Look at the pension uh, system. Um, if we don't reform pension system now, um, we cannot guarantee to our citizens, to our pensioners, that in several years they will be able to get guaranteed pension. Um, with land market, uh, we, Ukraine is in a unique situation when many years ago our parliament decided to forbid the landowners, citizens who own the land, to sell, sell the land that they own. Quite unusual, especially for the United States, but I believe for many countries in the world. It was done. Now we need to reverse it. Otherwise, this, the, um, the foundation of our economy at this stage, agriculture sector, cannot develop further. So those are things that um, uh, ahead of us. But let me um, tell you where we are. Again, we missed some time in 2014. Patience of people are not as it, it was three years ago, so to say. And yet, we need to do uh, some, some unpopular reforms. It doesn't make it easy. But the current team is committed uh, to do it. And we came to this point um, uh, by making of the last year, when we first assumed office, a new government, some unpopular and difficult decisions. The first thing that we've done was 
to bring tariffs for gas to the market level. For Ukraine, it's a big issue. So this is the first thing that this new government did, is to increase tariffs to the, uh, to the market level. Why we've done it? Not to hurt people. We've done it to demonstrate that we are decisive. We understand that without doing this, we cannot reform the gas sector. We cannot become fully uh, energy independent. So that was the logic. And I remember this discussion within the cabinet is whether we should do it or we should wait for another year, as IMF would suggest us. No, because under IMF program, we're supposed to go to the market level pricing now. We're done a year ago. Um, why? Because we wanted to speed up uh, uh, reforms. That was the main logic. And I was very happy that it was supported this uh, uh, position of prime minister was supported by my colleagues in the, in the cabinet of ministers. And that basically set a tone for going, uh, for going forward. Then was the introduction of electronic declarations, asset declarations, um, which is important uh, instrument for in the whole uh, system for fighting, uh, fighting uh, corruption. Then was um, the uh, nationalization, nationalization of the largest bank in the country, Privat Bank, which happened to be owned by uh, two oligarchs uh, with quite significant influence over media in the country. And uh, the bank itself was quite large and it was quite risky to manage the transition. We didn't shy away, we did it. Although that has to be done years before. So we made this unpopular decisions in order now to embark on the most uh, difficult one. As I said, it's a pension reform. It's a land market reform. And I'm very confident that uh, we will be able to achieve it um, within the next months or two. What is very important to, uh, to note about the dynamics of, of reforms? Three years ago, or two years ago even, it was very common to say that this is an IMF program that has to be done. If you search now, over the last year, none of the members of the government said we do it because it's an IMF program. It's our conscious decision to say we do it because we believe it's right to do it. And we are together want to uh, implement the reforms and to be, be proud of it. Not to shy the way, but actually to be proud of the team that actually transformed the country. After we do land market reform, pension reform, and one important element, which is privatization, which was, I believe, a failure for, for, for so many years, all right? Um, I would consider we are we complete, almost complete um, IMF program. And at the moment, we're just midpoint of this program. Uh, my job now is to think what will happen after IMF program. As you know, it finishes at uh, 2018. IMF was a strong partner and is a strong partner uh, in supporting reforms in the country. But 
uh, as every responsible politician, we should think what would happen afterwards. And afterwards, in 2018, we want to become um, a self-sufficient, uh, competitive uh, economy with access to international markets. Um, so when we need financing, we can attract it. And we need to have a very strong case to present to the, to the investors. This is for the, uh, for the bond markets. We also know that our future depends on our ability to bring private equity investors into the country. And this is another ambition for the next uh, years, that what we do in the country, the reform that we do in the country, actually increase investment attractiveness. And let me tell you how we do that. Again, this is part of our discussions within the government. If we, uh, let's take energy efficiency. It's a strange word, yeah? energy efficiency, what does it mean? Now, we can listen to our European colleagues on technical assistance, put it together, it's you know, nice words, good ideas, but unless you really understand why you want to do it, um, uh, you won't be able to pursue it anywhere else. Why are we doing it? We actually create an opportunity for investors to come in. We understand that we, as a state, do not have resources to um, invest in uh, energy efficiency. We need billions of dollars to do that. But we want to be energy independent, right? And we don't want to uh, sp uh, spend money on uh, buying gas from Russia, for example. Um, how we achieve it is, again, resources of the budget are very limited, is very limited. So what do we do? We put together a regulatory framework which create a market, an opportunity for private investors. They know that they come, if they invest in energy efficiency project, they're guaranteed to get uh, return back from the savings that they achieved. So this, this is what we do at the moment, put regulatory frameworks in every single sector to create it, to make it attractive for investors to come in to take this opportunity to develop uh, the country. Um, one of the problems that we do have, and I have want to publicly recognize it, is that despite the fact that we're moving to the market-oriented economy, we do privatizations, we do just um, change regulatory environment for the private sector, some of the areas, are, uh, elements are uh, still behind. And I'm talking about law enforcement. Uh, the law enforcement is still, is still very much as it was during Soviet Union, quite repressive, and business doesn't, doesn't like it. Right? It's ineffective, expensive, and bad for business environment. So this is the last component, uh, missing component, that needs to be addressed in order for us to to really progress with reforms. And what we do in this, uh, in this area? First of all, we uh, set up two new institutions that main goal of which are fight with corruption. This Anti-Corruption Bureau, it's an agency that was set up by, uh, by scratch, from scratch, 
with help of our American uh, colleagues. Agency for Prevention and Corruption, that the agency that also totally new, that analyzes the, the electronic declarations of, of state officials, um, that look at the conflict of interest and the party financing. Um, uh, so these two institutions, it's a new law enforcement, basic enforcement mechanism that will work um, on new standards, right? Because the older institutions cannot do that. Uh, one of the biggest problems for the business for the business in Ukraine was tax police. It was a part of state fiscal service, and uh, it was ineffective. Again, expensive for the state and bad for business environment. So we eliminated at the beginning of this year, and we're about to set up a new institution, much smaller, five times smaller, um, with totally different approach to, um, uh, of, uh, of working, right? It used to be people in Balaclava with, uh, with, with machine guns, resolving the problems with those who pay, don't pay taxes, which don't always need um, the special kit to do that. Sometimes you just, the first you start with some analytical approach, finding the actually where the problems are, how you resolve it, right? And then maybe it will come to it. But that was actually the initial reaction. That's how they reacted. So not surprising that business was unhappy with this. So we eliminated tax police, and we are setting up the new institution, the Financial Investigation Service, five times smaller, analytical unit, um, also, we're getting a technical support from uh, our American colleagues uh, to do it because that requires a very special uh, experience. Um, you know, understanding how the tax evasion or some economic crimes are done in other countries. And this is also a cross-border problem now. So, we're setting up this institution. Not surprisingly that all institutions are fighting back. You know, everybody tries to defend their life, you know, right to exist. So all this, uh, at the moment, some people look at this and say, listen, but, you know, if there is such a conflict, then maybe something is wrong. I think it's right. I think if there is a pushback from the old institutions, it means that new institutions are really effective. Are they putting a threat and moving into the right direction? So... With, and I'm mentioning this because it's on my agenda, Financial Investigation Unit. This is something which I, as a minister, promote, and I'm supported by Prime Minister and President. Um, National Anti-Corruption Bureau. It was also, um, uh, it was initiated by the President, and now it brings results. Two years later, it was set up in 2014, now it brings results. The most recent results was the arrest of state of head of state fiscal service. Uh, this is the highest ranked official arrested for, for corruption so far. It would be impossible to think about this two years ago. It's not even about political win, will. It's about capacity of institutions to do that. They just cannot do this. The new institution like an anti-corruption bureau can do it. It sends very strong signals to everyone that actually Ukraine is serious about fighting corruption. Ukraine is serious about improving business climate. And when I now meet with investors, I feel 
totally different uh, attitude now. They, we, I can now show them the results, what we achieved. I can, when I meet with businesses who work in Ukraine, they tell me, VAT refunds that was a problem for many years, this problem will be resolved now. It didn't happen by surprise, overnight. It didn't happen on New Year Eve. It required some work from outside, but it was done. And now people, people or businesses trust us. And they tell to other investors, this is, Ukraine is a good destination. So that's how we're doing reforms, right? It's not always easy. There is some pushback, but we know where we're going. And we focus on very practical and pragmatic steps that build confidence from the society and build confidence from, uh, from, uh, from business in the country. And that is the key to our success. Thank you. I like it here. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, that was a great presentation and very helpful. Um, before we get started, I would just, I'm, I'm aware as, as someone who's been fortunate enough to visit Ukraine three times in the last 20 years, um, that it, um, that Americans sometimes have a hard time grasping some essentials about the country. And in particular, I think it's important to point out as we listen to someone who's trying to help Ukraine um, reform and develop at this critical time that we just put it in a little bit of context. So let me just quickly do that. And this is to say that Ukraine may have had the worst 20th century of any country in the world. That is, in the First World War, we in America don't often think about it, but some of the most difficult battles were fought on Ukrainian territory. Some of the greatest destruction of that war was in Ukraine. Then, when the war ended in 1918 in the West, a, period, a new period of war and instability was just getting underway in Ukraine that would go on for longer than the original war, where you have the Russian Revolution, the Civil War, much of which is fought in a particularly vicious and difficult way in Ukraine. Uh, and so you had a sort of a double period of mass murder, of dislocation, of devastation. Well, you have a few years of relative calm, and then, the, then Stalin's forced collectivization, again, kills literally millions of people across Ukraine in some of the worst examples of human suffering, dispossession, literally willed starvation in the history of mankind. Um, that was over, and then very soon afterwards came the Second World War, again, where many of the greatest battles and the greatest suffering were on the territory of Ukraine, involved mass death, mass dislocation, destruction of infrastructure. Um, and we can think of that in economic terms, but I think it's also important to think of what happens to family structures, to social capital, to questions like trust, to the relationships of governmental institutions with people. Um, there are all kinds of complex ways in which that terrible history is still echoing and re-echoing inside Ukrainian institutions, in Ukrainian families, 
in Ukrainian churches and other groups. And so it's, it's important, I think, that we bring a bit of perspective because you, you often hear people saying, well, why can't they just fix it? Uh, particularly from places that, that maybe haven't had experiences that are even comparable. So I would just like to say, Minister, um, I want to congratulate you and say that the work that you're doing is important and not just important for the standpoint of a particular government in Ukraine, but for um, helping one of the countries in the world that really needs a fresh start in the 21st century to try to, to build that. So um, that's at least the perspective I come from all this on. Of course, having said all that, uh, Ukraine, as in the past, still faces a whole set of of extraordinary difficulties and dangers. What would you say is the greatest challenge facing Ukraine today? I realize you have so many choices now to, to think about, but... It's a... The biggest challenge now is to... Um, not to miss this opportunity to transform Ukraine. Uh, we still have this window uh, open, and we, we have to do it. Yes, we had difficult past, and a lot of um, dark pages in our history, which explains why it's so difficult. But uh, when you're in position to change something, you don't use for excuses why you why it's difficult. You need to do it and to be proud of it. So the biggest challenge is actually for the team of the reformers, uh, which are currently uh, in place, to transform the country, to make the changes irreversible. I can say they're irreversible already, right? I'm confident about this. Somebody say that you know, there is still some risks of uh, history repeating and Ukraine again facing towards, you know, Russia, for example, right? So uh, I don't think this is, this is a possibility, right? We clearly made our choice, not because of geography, but because of values. And Russia has to change itself. Right to become a democracy, to become, you know, to respect uh, people's rights in order for us to to become, you know, close again. So um, that's an opportunity to to do that. It doesn't mean that you know if we don't do, the window um, will will not be another opportunity in the future. But we want the people who are currently around us, our citizens, um, friends people who don't know brothers, sisters, whatever, um, they, they deserve a better life. And this is our responsibility to give it to them. Well, you're having a very busy week of uh, the spring meeting of the IMF, and you're seeing a lot of uh, your colleagues from around the world. Um, what is the biggest economic concern that Ukraine is bringing to this meeting, and what is on your agenda uh, as you participate in the IMF spring meeting? 
Um, very important now is to uh, to get the most from the uh, support we're getting from the international financial organization. There have been some examples where this support was ineffective. It's very important now to align our uh, our resources uh, together so to make it success for Ukraine and for IFIs. And I have very specific proposals that we communicate to our to our partners. We improved, for example, our portfolio with World Bank. Uh, historically, the disbursement rate was one of the lowest in the world, right? We actually addressed this problem so that every money, every uh, dollar, which being allocated to Ukraine is used uh, properly, because we need these resources to speed up our reforms. So I'm not just coming coming with new ideas. I'm coming with specific. Uh, proposals, and I hear uh, positive feedback. Now, after a period of negative growth, Ukraine's GDP started to expand uh, last year and is projected to grow, though there seemed to be some sense that the growth rate may be slowing. What do you see as the medium-term outlook for Ukraine? What kind of growth can you expect, and how, do you, how does this translate into better standards of living for more of the people in what is remains one of Europe's poorest countries? Um, last year, we first time demonstrated economic growth, which uh, changed the trend after the several years of, uh, of uh, uh, decrease in GDP. Uh, for this year, we expected uh, around 3%. Um, unfortunately, we had to reduce this, um, uh, this forecast by 1%, by 1%, so 2%. Um, and the reason for this, again, the, uh, some actions uh, taken by the, uh, uh, the uh, Russia-supported uh, uh, quasi-republics, <laughs> On the, on the east of the country, which basically the, our, our companies that paid taxes to Ukrainian budgets were confiscated. And so that, I think, the, the last thing, but uh, still Russia can do it, they're quite limited in, the, in impacting us. So this is the, they tried to do it. Uh, yes, we were hit by another 1%, but, you know, all these negative scenarios of, again, you know, economy collapsing, this is just not true. We managed to build a strong economy, right? Again, it's not as strong as we want, but even such a actions on behalf of, from side of our neighbor, right now we can withhold. Um, so going forward, it, it's more, not, now it's more up to us how we can grow. I believe that the rate of growth of two or three percent is unacceptable. This is not what people uh, of Ukraine expect from us. This is not why we are you know, putting so much efforts in reforming the country, not to achieve such, such uh, rates. You know, we need to get a higher, this should be our ambition, a much higher growth rates. And I'm very, very confident that we will be able to do that. In order for do, to do this, there are some things that we have to do. And number one obstacle is privatization. You know, if we want to attract uh, private money into the country, 
we need to relaunch privatization. The last big transparent privatization happened in 2005. It was uh, a privatization of uh, Kriverostali, big steel uh, manufacturer. It was bought by Metal Steels at that time for record amount of money. And uh, that's the example of how we should do privatization. So I do believe you know, in high economic growth, but I know what it takes to get there. So it's, it's a hard work, and we'll get the numbers of 6 7%. You've talked about energy reform as being one of the uh, major focuses of Ukraine's reforms. Could you explain what the energy reforms have been, how they're working, and what you hope to achieve by this process? The subsidies and so on. Um, the energy reform is, uh, there are several components to it. Right, there is in every sector there is own uh, uh, reform agenda. So in gas sector, in electricity, um, uh, but the main main goal of it is to introduce competition. This the energy sector was one of the most least reformed for years. It actually came from the Soviet Union. You know, when there was a state, state economy with no competition. Um, and it's not how it should be. In gas sector, you know, what we want to have is that the private investors buying a, a right to explore and product, uh, produce gas, for example, they should have free access, not, for, not free, for money, market, right? But, you know, unrestricted access to the... Um, gas transport infrastructure. Otherwise, they produce something, you cannot sell it, right? Then, um, you know, very important part is the tariff, uh, tariff reforms. If the price at which a resource is sold is below cost or not market level, then obviously there is uh, no motivation for, for companies to, uh, to produce or to invest into production. Or, that was historically true as well, there is uh, enormous opportunities for manipulating with resources that actually, you know, on paper sold below the cost. And it is enormous um, temptation for somebody who has access to the resource to sell it at the market prices somewhere, right? And claim it sold it below a regulated price. So basically, there is a lot of problems. Um, what we do in the gas market is we transform from the state monopoly gas, which now uh, produce gas, transport gas, stores gas, and trade gas, supply gas, right? We, uh, we uh, restructure this company, and we create all the segment uh, where possible. For example, transportation cannot be competition there. It needs to, it's a monopoly which is regulated. But uh, for everything else, there should be competition. There should be different, more traders, uh, there should be anyone who wants to produce gas should have ability to do this. And whoever wants to have access to the gas storages, please, you know, that's or shared use. Just pay for it. And that's every sector. Similar thing with, uh, with electricity market. Um, so it's a, it's a big, big reform which cannot be done for one year, but we're about to complete it. 
You had mentioned also that uh, both large companies and households really didn't pay market prices for particularly natural gas. Um, how does the reform affect these uh, segments, and are, is it helping to conserve the use of, of the resource by putting a, a realistic price on these things? Uh, yes, actually. Uh, in quite recently, when the, the prices were below market level, then, um, then the, the consumers, they bought it cheap, and they weren't interested in saving, because they don't, don't, don't pay much. You know, why should they save? Well, the reality is that we as a state subsidize these people, and eventually, this is their money, taxpayers' money, that we just somehow put through the system um, so that they can get a cheaper price for gas, which is ridiculous. Um, so as a result, we had this you know, problem for the budget, um, no savings on the gas. Political element of this is dependency on Russia, unacceptable. Now we move prices to the market level. It changes the behavior because... Now those who pay, everybody pays market prices. They it's 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 a big cost. It's a big big cost. Um, so people start to save. They are motivated to save. Of course, a lot of people get state subsidies. Uh, so if they don't have their income, does not allow them, you know, to to cover the the cost of utility. But not all of it. But not everything should be paid from the. <laughs> Not all income should go to the subsidy, but certain level, right? It's above 15%. So then the state covers the rest. It also actually um, is not. It's also part of solution because those who receive subsidies, significant part of it, they also not interested in saving, because they know that the state will pay for them. The state used to provide them cheap resource. Now they just provide money and subsidies, and they still for them cost is limited. So. We try with our reforms. We also try to stimulate to, uh, to put a, uh, to stimulate uh, people to, to save. So it's not just tar level of tariffs stimulates uh, um, savings of consumptions, right? But also subsidy system should also stimulate. So if people do not invest in energy efficiency, do not implement any measures, then you know they should lose at least part, partially, rights to the subsidy. Then they're motivated. And then eventually everybody wins. No. They, will, they will introduce energy efficiency measures. The, they will pay less uh, for, for the tax. They will consume less. The state will become more, less dependent on Russia. Or I can tell you even, you know, with right energy efficiency measures, we will not import any cubic meter of gas. We could become an exporter of gas. It takes some time. And this, of course, is not just about households, but about industrial companies, where an industrial company under this, in the Soviet system would have a very low price of gas, so investments would be based on that and uneconomic, perhaps, in market forces. Yeah. So a gas reform really implies a wholesale industrial restructuring and reform. Am I, am I right about that? That's right. That already happening for, for a number of years because the price for the industry was moved on the market level quite a long time ago. 
yeah, some businesses were just selling uh, gas. <laughs> you know, it's just different way of, uh, for, for example, some fertilizers, right? Uh, is uh, just historically, it's just a very strange business of selling a solid gas. Of course, it's not economically feasible under current yep. situation. And so um, you're increasing gas production already. Has Ukraine been able to increase its gas production, or is that still in the future? It's increasing. Um, we made one mistake in 2014. We increase royalties uh, for the gas production. And uh, unfortunately, at that time, I couldn't stop this decision. Um, and that actually sent a signal to those who, any gas, uh, you know, any investments, it's, it, they, not, they cannot be repaid within one year, right? Usually it's long-term investors. And so what investors in the gas sector, energy sector, seek is some predictability. And we made one mistake in 2014 that we later on reversed, right? Uh, but it sent a bad signal to investors that, um, you know, the rates could increase, and there was some actually drop in investments, and that uh, as a result we didn't get uh, more increase of production than we expected. But we learned the lesson. We learned the lesson. I think everybody learned the lesson now. And we now in the, in the, you know, expect, first of all, we demonstrate that we have a stable environment, we provide stable regulation, and that will lead to the increase of, um, of the production, both from in private sector and in state sector, because state-owned company, uh, one of our largest companies, Ukrgas Vodobovania, they now have a lot of resources, uh, after we adjusted tariffs to the market level, a lot of resources to reinvest into new technologies. Tracking, tracking, yeah? Fracking. Fracking, yeah, sorry. Fracking, um, uh, and that, they put a lot of money and into it, in this technology, and it brings results. It brings results that we wanted to achieve. So Ukraine is beginning to frack, and it's producing natural gas this way. Yes. Very interesting. Um, I think fracking may be the less, least popular technique in the, in the Kremlin. Well, we need to consider everything, yeah. Um, <laughs> Let's make them happy. All right. Um, corruption has been something people have often identified as a problem in Ukraine. How serious is corruption now? Do people have figures in terms of percentage of GDP or, or flows of money? How, how much is, does corruption cost Ukraine? It's really difficult to assess it in, in, in dollar terms, right? Uh, you know, it's difficult to assess, you know, how many foreign companies would he have in Ukraine they, for example, didn't face some corruption, you know, several years ago, five years ago, six years ago. Maybe they will be here already, right? So it's difficult to actually put in mm -hmm. some numbers uh, on it. Uh, what is very important, and uh, I can certify this, was my meeting with, with businesses. Uh, some businesses haven't seen corruption since, you know, their start of the business. I met uh, recently with uh, IT Association, and uh, I meet uh, quite regularly with different, with different industries to understand what problem they have and how we as a ministry or the government could help them. And uh, it was an interesting question of one of the uh, people, of participants. He said, you know, when I go to, uh, to the market to raise some money, investors ask me about corruption. You know, how should they explain 
you know, because I didn't face anything, right? For the last three years, when I started the company, I didn't have any. I told him, well, say what it is, right? Um, I think this is, uh, this is, this problem is exaggerated. It doesn't mean that it, it doesn't exist. It exists. But the fight with corruption brings results. I just told you uh, recently about the um, uh, arrest of the head of state fiscal service, right, for corruption charges. Um, one of the initiatives that uh, we as a ministry did, we implemented the new tool for administrating uh, the VAT refunds, transparent, which eliminates corruption in this area that was uh, the most notorious for years and years. So these actions, practical actions, um, answer your question. <laughs> it's easier to answer it, you know, philosophically, but practical actions like VAT refunds, uh, you know, uh, changing the way some, some taxes are administrated, actually remove corruption possibilities within state fiscal service. And that's what people notice, and they react to this positively. Yeah. Um, in terms of whether it's asset recovery or some kind of making it more difficult for large-scale Ukrainian corrupt operators to move their money offshore, are there ways you would like to get more or better cooperation from international financial authorities? Um, we're actually getting such support. We're already getting such, such support. And this is without uh, this it's not even support, it's cooperation, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think in the modern world, in the global world, uh, we should move from the way, like, support this world. Everyone is interdependent, right? Uh, you know, you don't want, uh, Americans don't want, uh, you know, some money, for example, flee to other countries, including Ukraine, right? And vice versa. Um, we, uh, one of the... Um, Initiatives that we've uh, we've done. We joined since 1st of January 2017. We joined the BEPS action plan um, to to actually fight the uh, base uh, tax erosion. And uh, you know that's that we become the part of international community. We'll use the same practices how to fight this, uh, how to make sure that the, what the value is created in Ukraine is being taxed in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. You know the offshore. Uh, the offshore uh, money being sent to offshore, it was also a problem. Uh, there is less of a problem now. The problem now is to bring this money back. Because that money were made in Ukraine and need to be in Ukraine. So that's how we work, you know, what we're working on. But it's not just enforcing this money to bring back. We also, it's our duty to also improve the business climate. Whatever money is outside, it's, it's money that they could be brought in either by force or by creating a right business environment. And we're doing both. But without right business environment, even enforcement will not work. So you're thinking in some cases it sounds like that rather than simply suing someone who has their money overseas to try to bring it back, you would be willing, Ukraine might be willing to work out a system where they bring it back for investment and... Yes. Clearly, yes. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, it's also not right just to use the like, enforcement mechanism. Eventually, we want all the money, whoever wants to invest 
in Ukraine should be free to do this. Right? We want to create such an opportunity, such a magnet that will attract the money to the country. Because that's the employment, that's salaries, that's the future of our people. Okay, great. Well, I have probably monopolized our guest uh, long enough. So we should turn to the audience for questions and comments now. And I've asked one of our Hudson fellows, uh, Hannah Thoburn, who had had the misfortune at one point of being one of my students, so I was entitled to some kind of compensation, to uh, to take uh, take over the duty of calling on people in the audience. This, of course, means she will have the right for at least one question herself. So, Hannah, would you get up? And do we have a microphone for people? We do have microphones, so... Uh, when Hannah calls on you, please wait for the microphone. When the microphone comes, ask a question. A question is a short statement that would be punctuated if it appeared in print with a question mark. Uh, and also, please identify yourself uh, so we'll know who it is and so our friends watching on the Internet will know who it is. So, Hannah, you want to come up and start? Ah. Uh, So why don't you come up and uh, where you can look at people? Is Mike working? I'm going to get this this particular privilege, um, but uh, thank you very much, Walter and uh, Minister Daniyuk. Uh, so I'll, I guess I'll go ahead and, and ask the first question and ask a little bit about uh, the situation you find yourself in with the IMF. You've just received another one billion dollar tranche. Uh, what kind of requirements has the IMF set out for receiving the next tranche, for moving forward in this you know, $17 billion, $70.5 billion program I believe you have with the IMF? What are the next steps in reform that Ukraine needs to take? Um, yeah, in fact, um, this is another thing which I had to mention, is that uh, just a year ago when the new government was put in place, um, there was a lot of skepticism about the continuation of IMF program. And uh, we renewed uh, cooperation and we reached staff level agreements within three weeks of new government taking place. Uh, so it's a very right question, right? Since then we received two tranches. Um, we've done a lot of things within the program, but a lot of things was done outside the program which are also very important for, for the country. Going forward, um, the, there are several preconditions for, for next tranche. Um, the very important is the pension reform. So without pension reform, there will be no tranche. But remember what I said in my speech, right? Is not because IMF needs it, it's because we need to do this reform. We owe this reform to our citizens. We owe this reform. So this is what we're going to do. And uh, IMF supports us in this. All right. Go ahead and start with questions here in the front. Elaine Sereo. I'm the Associate Rector of WIUU in Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, this has been wonderful to hear you speak today. Uh, I'd like to specifically ask uh, 
two questions that both have to do with accountability, transparency, and privatization regarding, particularly as it ranks to the pension, pension aspects. Um, could you elaborate? Last year this time I was in Kiev and talking to government officials about accountability and transparency. And could you, one, talk about how you've moved forward specifically on not just the accountability, but the transparency for the Ukrainian public so that they have a knowledge base of what you're doing and at the same time how that knowledge base can translate to their uh, support for not just privatization, but how it impacts on their pension aspects. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Um. As I um, explained at the very beginning that I've been in different stages of doing reforms in the country, what I learned is very important to be fully transparent. There are no things that you cannot explain to people. And uh, if you can't explain it, or afraid of doing this, that uh, there is a high chance of failure. Just don't even start. Um, so what we're doing in the ministry, and some other ministries doing the same, is when we're working on policy making, right? we engage, um, we don't put any restrictions. We engage all experts who want to take part in it. Right? Where we openly, for example, when we did changes to the tax code, all experts who wanted to take part of it, they done it. It delayed the process. You know, it delayed the process of work for four months. Sometimes you lose temper, right? Because you want to see the result of all these actions. But at least during the during this uh, process, we see you know that we have more and more and more supporters. Those who come with crazy ideas understand that maybe they're not workable. You know, those who um, you know don't believe in certain actions, they started to believe that this is the right thing to do. And as a result, the changes to the tax code that we developed, we started developing it last summer, um, you know, were adopted by the parliament, and there were no single voice saying that it's the wrong thing to do. They were afraid to go against, um, you know, reform which is widely supported. And it gave me opportunity now to reform the VAT register, to reform uh, SFS, um, to uh, you know, to uh, to change some tax policies, and I'm now free to do it because I've got this. I started right. I started from being fully transparent to include everyone who wants to do it. Um, that's about transparency, accountability. Well, it's not how we improve it. It's not how I think it's already expected that. You know, everyone is judged by what, you know, he or she did. That's already in a, you know, in, 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 not in the culture, or maybe in the culture already. It's already there. Because people have seen people, enough people who tell a lot and don't do anything. Just look on IMF program. Again, very big difference. You know, we 
being criticized by uh, Yulia Tymoshenko, who is now opposition, uh, in the position, but she used to be prime minister and uh, she was a reliable partner of IMF for some time. So, you know, she promised a lot. She signed the right documents. She was receiving money and then didn't do anything. As a result, you know, we're still repaying this debt and the country is not reformed. So the weak, unreformed economy have to repay the money that actually you only use in order to change something, something dramatically. So, um, you know, that's an example of a responsibility, and a responsibility and the fact that uh, you know, she's not supported now, this is also people understand that this is a responsible behavior and she's accountable for this. What we're doing is we, you know, we, you know in, in our IMF program, first of all, we do um, what we believe is the right thing to do, right? And we, comparing to the previous uh, programs, is we, for every dollar that is um, borrowed from IMF, you know, the amount of, you know, real, kind of how, how, how even to translate it to some numbers, but the effect from reforms on the dollar attracted from IMF is uncomparable to any other programs. That's also is accountability. No, because I'm accountable for every dollar we get. I know that we'll have to repay it. So I want to use, and my colleagues in the, in the government, we, that's why I was so much focused on the reforms. Because we want to demonstrate people that, you know, we're not, uh, you know, we're different. Yeah? We're changing the country. Next question to Anders. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Anders Åsland, uh, the Atlantic Council. Everybody tells me now that you are the anchor of reform in the government, and you talked about one of the major reforms on the agenda now, the land market uh, uh, law. How do you think that it should be done, and how do you see the politics in Parliament around the land market uh, reform? I won't ask if you think that you will get it done, because you will have to say yes on that. Thank you. The land market reform is, you know, related reform for many years. For those who don't understand, uh, I just repeat again uh, that uh, after Ukraine became dependent, citizens in Ukraine got right to privatize land, and they've done it. Uh, and the the prospects were normal market, you know, circulation. Those who want to use land, accumulate, or who don't, they sell. But no. Somehow, Parliament decided at that time that uh, you know people have you know people should be deprived from their rights to use the land which they own. In a unique situation. Um, and for all these years, since this moratorium on sale of agricultural land in place. Um, People forgot, you know, the people who own land now, they even don't know what it means. And they somehow got into this old, old uh, neg negative image about this, saying like, okay, if the market is open, then, uh, you know, the only thing that you have is land, you will have to sell it cheap. There will be some big boys, oligarchs, or foreigners, Americans. It changes. It just changes depending where Ukraine is. Either Ukrainian, sorry, either Amer oligarchs, 
will come and buy everything, or Americans, or Chinese. At one point it was Russians. But there is always a threat that somebody will come and buy it. You know, people maybe don't understand that you know, even if you buy land, you cannot take it <laughs> out of the country. So this was years of, of negative, uh, negative uh, PR about this. And passing it through the parliament will not be easy. It will be a very complicated thing to do. Also, who would oppose it is some companies which now lease this land cheap and who don't want to distract their business uh, for their business to be distracted. Because if a market is launched, then basically large land banks, they might uh, use some pieces of it. It's a, it's, it's a risk. But again, fundamentally, we're talking about private property rights, which is it's fundamental, right? So I believe in the reform that do not put, to put minimum restrictions on the land market. I do understand that we need to start with the, with the, with the first stage to allow the farmers to, you know, to buy the land, to secure the land. And for that, the part of the, of the reform should include um, uh, a financing. For those who want to buy land, farmers, for example, and they don't have means, we as a state should provide financing for them to do that. Right? But then the market should be open to, to everyone with a lim minimum, uh, minimum limitation. And that will give a huge boost to the uh, development of the agricultural sector. Because those who, who own land, they want to attract financing, they will be able to borrow against the land. Right? Agricultural companies will be able to capitalize on the land that they acquire. Because at the moment, they cannot do this. This is not their land. In five years, it will not be theirs. There is no security. But with the, when you own the land, then of course, uh, you know, your value is higher. Uh, so I, it will not be easy, but at the moment, we are very committed to pushing it through the parliament. And uh, that, that was one of the most important reforms, together with pension reforms, that will change the country and its economy. All right, so we're going to take three last questions here all at once uh, and, and then bring our session here to a close. So the first question will go all the way uh, in the back to the lady in the, in the red. Uh, Yulia Timoshenko is initiating referendum. Uh, I thought it was it's your name. Voice of, America, Voice of America, Ukrainian service, Irina Matvejic. Uh, okay, Yulia Tymoshenko is initiating referendum on the land reform. She want to ask people what do they think about uh, selling land to big corporations and uh, uh, foreigners. What do, what's the future of this referendum, in your opinion? And my question also, what's the best way to fill the pension fund uh, budget? Is there an alternative to the increasing of uh, pension age in Ukraine? Thank you. And then the next question uh, to the gentleman there in the back. Mm -hmm. I need to I'm a student at Howard University. Um, I wanted to know about Ukraine's surplus and deficit and maybe um, what they're going to do as far as trade-offs with other countries to make their economy a little bit stronger. And then the final question to the woman here in the front. Hi, I'm Penny Starr with Breitbart News. Back to the energy independence. Could you expand on fracking and what, uh, who's helping Ukraine with that technology? Is the U.S. involved in helping you? And what are the prospects for um, that helping your energy independence? Thank you. Thank you. 
So three questions on energy independence, Yulia Tymoshenko and land reform, a more general question about Ukrainian economy, and anything else you may want to add here at the end. I'll start with Yulia Tymoshenko, because when you start your question, I thought you were introducing yourself, and I was a bit confused. But, you know, maybe it's wrong, but I didn't hear about this referendum. Today's news, I haven't read today's news, so, you know. I'm not surprised, and I don't care. Populists will always try to play their games. We know what we're doing. It's the right thing for the economy. People like her, also talking about accountability, responsible for the fact that, you know, for the state where we are in the moment. Because of her, we were dependent on Russia for so many years on the gas. Because of her, some of the reforms that could have been done many years ago, they still haven't done. So, you know, populists do their own things. We have our own agenda to implement. What was another question? Sorry, was. It's the pension reform is more than just filling up the pension fund, right? It's it's more than that. Unfortunately, what we have at the moment is unfair system with a lot of disbalances and flaws. So it is not just how to bring more revenues to pension fund. It's actually those. It's also to to make sure that the pension could be received. People entitlement as those who actually have right for this, right? It's so it's it's what we about to implement is a complex of measures that make system fair. Those who work and contribute to the pension fund, they have right for the for the retirement certain age. Those who didn't. For different reasons, maybe they didn't want to work, maybe they can't work, they couldn't work, or maybe they work but illegally, right? They won't be able to to retire at the age when those who actually work could do. So it's more than just extra source for revenues. And again, fair pension system is. The fairness of the system is something which allows us to come to people and say, "Support it." If it's unfair, it's you know even if it gets nice elements of reducing the fiscal deficit and other elements, if it's unfair, people will not accept it. So fairness is very important, and this is this is the key element of our pension reform. On the on the on the on the deficit. The part of IMF program, we 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 reduce our budget deficit every year, right? Last year it was three point seven percent. You know, this this year is three percent, 
and that has continued to uh, to drop with 2.5% year after, and then 2.2% at the end of the program. It's very important uh, to do this, and we very carefully during the budget process adhere to this. Uh, sometimes it means that we have to make unpopular uh, decisions, but we do it. It's very important for us to reduce it. In, words, in terms of energy efficiency, I really don't know which, uh, which technology is being, uh, being used. And um, in my ideal, in ideal situation, I even shouldn't worry about this. Uh, we should create, again, I'm just a believer in, uh, I'm slightly unusual for Ministry of Finance being a libertarian, but this is my belief. Uh, this is um, uh, maybe first and last time in the history of Ukraine. Uh, but I do believe that we need to think about the proper regulation. And then the private business will come and they will use the most efficient uh, technologies. Um, U.S. is the most advanced at, at this front at the moment, right? So I'm sure U.S. technology is being, uh, being, being used. But pretty much it's, it's, it should be the choice of business. Whatever is more effective should be, should be put, uh, should be put uh, in use. All right. Thank you all very much. I'd like to ask you to, to join me in thanking both Walter Russell Mead, uh, Minister Daniluk. Uh, we wish you the very best in all of your reforms, in, in taking apart the old tax police and everything else you have to do this year, everything that's on your agenda. So please join me uh, in thanking both of these gentlemen uh, for their time today. Thank you.